welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of most of the individuals and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 1 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Grigory Rasputin. Now let's get started with our story about Grigory Rasputin. Few individuals have generated as many legends and falsehoods as Grigory Efimovich Rasputin, the so-called Mad Monk of Russia. That Rasputin was neither mad or a monk is typical of much of the characterization of this Siberian peasant who would achieve a position of great influence over the government and court of Nicholas II of Russia, the last czar of the Romanov dynasty. If many of the circumstances surrounding Rasputin's improbable ascension and spectacular death seem impossibly dramatic, it is only because much of what has been written and repeated for decades was distorted or fabricated. Still, only in Russia could such a bizarre and beguiling individual play such an important role in the climactic final act of a 300-year-old dynasty. What is definite is that Grigory Rasputin was born on January 9, 1869, in the Siberian village of Pokrovsko, one of nine children of Efim and Anna. Even the number of surviving siblings of Rasputin is a matter of dispute. Possibly all of his nine brothers and sisters died only a few days after they were born, and the only sister to perhaps survive was born in 1875 and named Feodosia. That such biographical information is unclear is due to both the disorganization at this level of Russian society and the remote location of Rasputin's birth and early life. Pokrovsko was a small town located on the Tura River between the Siberian cities of Tiumen and Tobolsk. Tiumen is 1,300 miles east of Moscow, even today an 18-hour automobile journey. In the late 19th century, this would have been a remote and isolated part of the world. As a child, Rasputin did not attend school and never received any form of formal education. Like all of the rest of his family and most of the peasants in the region, Rasputin was illiterate. Only 20% of Russian society at this point could read or write. His father was a typical simple laborer who scraped by with various agricultural vocations and raised horses and cattle, achieving a modest amount of peasant wealth. Because there was little factual evidence of Rasputin's youth, ultimately biographers invented all sorts of tales of a debauched and thieving teenager who survived as a notorious criminal and horse thief. But there are no records of any criminal arrests of Rasputin, and only one minor incident when he was a teenager, indicative of the mundane existence common to any inhabitant of the region. The only other fully documented aspect of Rasputin's life occurred in February of 1887, when the 18-year-old married Praskovia Dubrovina. The couple lived with Rasputin's parents, which was a Russian rural custom. His wife would give birth to seven children. Only three would survive to adulthood. 
For a decade, he would pursue the typical life of a Russian peasant of the times, living with his family, having children, and scratching out a living as a farm worker and laborer like his father. Suddenly, Rasputin's outlook and demeanor changed. Exactly what caused him to transform from a secular civilian into a religious pilgrim speaking of visions of the Virgin Mary is not clear, but by 1897, Rasputin had become a religious seeker, convinced that he was being called for some holy purpose. Such people were not unusual in Russia. Mystics, spiritual wanderers, and clerics, a common part of the religious landscape. Rasputin soon journeyed over 300 miles by foot on one of his longest pilgrimages to the monastery at Verkutoria, one of the holiest sites in Russia. Here he stayed for several months, observing monastic life and learning the basics of literacy. Although he was impressed with some of the individuals he met during this time period, he did not care for the cloistered routine of a monk and was personally too restless to pursue this type of lifestyle. Instead, he would continue to wander to various religious sites, allegedly making it as far as Mount Athos in Greece in 1900. One would think that his family, and especially his wife, would soon tire of this kind of absence. But throughout Rasputin's life, Praskovia would remain completely devoted and would never leave their home in Pokrovsko, despite absences that lasted years. Gradually, Rasputin began to be viewed as a storets, a kind of Russian holy man of wisdom. Religious fervor, mysticism, and even belief in the occult permeated every level of 19th century Russian society, including the aristocracy and even the imperial family itself. Nicholas II ascended the throne in 1894, succeeding his father, Alexander III. Alexander was a repressive autocrat, molded by the assassination of his own father, Alexander II, by nihilist revolutionaries. By contrast, his son Nicholas was a passive, not particularly bright individual, typical of the out-of-touch monarchs that prevailed throughout Europe at the beginning of the 20th century. Upon his accession, he lamented to a cousin, I am not prepared to be a czar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. I have no idea of even how to talk to the ministers. Nicholas II's first act was to marry the beautiful Alex, the granddaughter of Queen Victoria, and the daughter of the ruling house of Hesse, a beautiful woman who had already turned down the proposal of the future King of England, George V. Converting to the Orthodox religion, Alex also chose the more Russian name of Alexandra in an attempt to appeal to the public who was fully aware of her German background. While similar to Nicholas in terms of a lack of intellect, she was fiercely autocratic and stridently opinionated about the affairs of state and the actions of her husband. Like all female monarchs, Alexandra also immediately began the process that was her most important function, providing her husband with a son and heir as only male offspring of the Tsar could inherit the throne. Alexandra gave birth to four daughters in eight years, developments that added to her practically immediate unpopularity. Finally, in 1904, Nicholas and Alexandra were blessed with the birth of a son, Alexei. Unfortunately, the heir was also cursed with another hallmark of the European aristocracy, hemophilia. Although this then incurable condition was kept a state secret, it would shape the mentality and behavior of Nicholas and Alexandra and greatly influence the events of the remainder of their reign. 1905 found Rasputin in the religiously prominent city of Kazan. 
Here, supported by a wealthy devotee, Rasputin impressed the local clergy with his piety, and already there was talk of acts of healing in previously impossible situations. Suddenly driven by the idea of building a church in his hometown of Pokrovsko, Rasputin decided that he would journey to the Russian capital of St. Petersburg. He brought a letter of introduction from the highest religious authority in Kazan and would quickly make an impression on one of the most prominent members of the Orthodox hierarchy in St. Petersburg, Archimandrite Theophan. Rasputin was now 36 years old, a tall, striking man with shoulder-length dark hair and penetrating eyes, who by all accounts made a compelling impression and seemed to have a gift for prescience and religious devotion. Theophan was eager to introduce this charismatic presence to his elite St. Petersburg connections. Two of these elites were the Grand Duchess Anastasia and the Grand Duchess Melitza, members of the aristocracy who were sisters originally from the Principality of Montenegro. Born Stana and Melitza, they assumed more Russian first names upon their marriage to the Russian Grand Dukes Nicholas Nikolaevich and Peter Nikolaevich, respectively two grandsons of Tsar Nicholas I and very prominent members of the royal entourage. Both of the Montenegrin aristocrats had a typical interest in spirituality, mysticism, and even the supernatural. Theophan was a close confidant of Melitza, and he told her of the impressive man of God, Grigory Rasputin, from Siberia. They were quickly introduced, and Melitza was intrigued enough to invite Rasputin to her home and introduce him to her husband, as well as Anastasia and Grand Duke Nicholas. It was not long before Rasputin received a formal introduction to the Tsar. The exact date of this introduction is known because Nicholas II kept a diary, which meticulously recorded all of the more mundane aspects of his life. On November 1, 1905, he wrote, Had tea with Melitza and Stana. We made the acquaintance of a man of God, Grigori, from Tobolsk province. While the introduction of such a citizen to an emperor who ruled literally by divine right would seem preposterous by just about any standard, Russia, the Russian court, and the current inhabitants of this court make such an interaction seem practically normal. In fact, there was precedent for such an individual within the inner circle of the Tsar's family. In 1900, a similarly charismatic figure— a Frenchman who went by the name of Monsieur Philippe was also introduced by the Montenegrins. Part mystic, part faith healer, part confidant, he managed to worm his way into the confidence of both the Tsar and Tsarina, especially with pronouncements about her inevitable birth of a son and heir. At first a practically covert member of court, he quickly gained the attention of both members of the government and the Tsar's mother, the Dowager Empress Maria, an even more domineering and opinionated woman than Alexandra. When Monsieur Philippe began offering Nicholas governmental advice and proclamations of a pregnancy that turned out to be false, investigations began in earnest about the background of this odd character. Nicholas was advised that Philippe was a rank charlatan, and eventually, most likely because of extreme pressure from his mother, the Tsar reluctantly told Philippe that he was no longer welcome. Philippe went back to France, but not before predicting that other spiritual men would be influential upon the life of the royal family, and not to be dismissive of such influence. Alexandra was actually incensed by Philippe's expulsion and felt this development was the result of inappropriate outsiders meddling in the family's personal relationships. One could not have created a better scenario for the ambitious and personally ruthless holy man of God, Grigory Rasputin. Nicholas II would also have been vulnerable for other secular reasons. 
On January 9, 1905, a peaceful demonstration in St. Petersburg, ultimately called Bloody Sunday, attempted to bring attention to lower-class poverty and suffering and was met with a hail of bullets. The resulting strikes and unrest came close to full-scale revolution before Nicholas agreed to grant some basic democratic liberties, including the formation of a parliamentary body, the Duma. This occurred after Russia was humiliated in a disastrous war with Japan, which catapulted the formerly isolated Asian nation onto the world stage and exposed imperial Russia as militarily weak and politically ineffectual. Only five days after meeting the Tsar, Rasputin sent Nicholas a letter filled with religious platitudes, but also offering advice as to how to handle the affairs of state. Fundamentally, Rasputin told the Tsar to rule with his heart and listen to God, and ignore the, quote, stiff and formal, unquote, input from more secular influences. Nicholas, already disappointed in himself and yielding absolute power, would have been susceptible to such advice which also would have increased the profile of Rasputin, allegedly a man of God. Theoretically, Rasputin could have gained access through his ability to manipulate the royal family into believing that he had power over the health of the Tsarevich Alexei. But Rasputin delved into matters of state from his very first interaction with Nicholas and Alexandra. He was shrewd enough to couch this advice in language that the Tsar already wanted to hear. Soon after this encounter, Rasputin left St. Petersburg for Pokrovsko. Upon his return, he requested an audience with the Tsar and Tsarina, ostensibly to present them with an icon. What was to be a brief visit turned into an hour-long tea, followed by similar letters of encouragement from Rasputin. It was not long until Rasputin would come to the palace of the Tsar and be admitted without an appointment. By the spring of 1907, Alexandra decided to introduce Rasputin to Anna Virubova, officially a lady-in-waiting at court, but also the Tsarina's closest friend. Anna was another deeply religious woman from an aristocratic family who married briefly and unhappily and became one of Rasputin's most devout disciples. Her opinion only strengthened his appeal to the Tsarina, who trusted Virubova implicitly. This connection further ingratiated Rasputin with other members of the aristocracy, although the Staretz was starting to engender feelings of either great enthusiasm or profound disgust, a consistent thread throughout the rest of Rasputin's life. Late 1907 brought the first of several incidents involving the well-being of the Tsarevich. Age three, he fell in the gardens of one of the Tsar's palaces at Tsarsko Selo. His leg immediately began to swell with internal bleeding, inducing terrific pain. Several doctors examined the boy, but admitted that they could do nothing but hope for the best. Alexandra summoned Rasputin from nearby St. Petersburg, by now Alexei's body terribly swollen, blackened patches under his eyes. When Rasputin arrived, he merely prayed at the boy's bedside and assured Alexandra that the boy would be fine. The next morning, extended family members who had left the previous night concerned that the heir might not survive were now stunned by the sight of Alexis sitting up in bed, bright and cheery, no longer listless or feverish, and without any sign of the swelling. This event, discussed throughout official St. Petersburg, cemented Rasputin's prominent position in the Tsar's household. Soon afterwards, an investigation was begun, not in St. Petersburg, but by officials in the Siberian region of Rasputin's hometown. Suspicion about him had grown about two abundant appendages clearly evident during visits to Pokrovsko, money and women. 
He was now wealthy enough to have purchased a large home near the main street of the village, and this house was filled during his presence with numerous female devotees. Where exactly was this money coming from, and what was Rasputin's relationship with these women? His manner of affectionately touching and kissing females repeatedly, even those he was meeting for the first time, only added to the rumors that Rasputin was engaged in some form of the forbidden sect of the Kleisti, adherents of a cultish belief that sin should be driven out of the body through the purifying excesses of orgiastic sex. The locals began to think of Rasputin as someone who was involved in something improper, something very different than their ordinary Siberian existence. That he boasted of his money and familiarity with important individuals, even with the czar and the royal family, did little to assuage their hostile skepticism. Still nothing officially came of the preliminary investigation, and it did not affect his standing at court. However, back in St. Petersburg, several prominent religious and political figures were already appraising Rasputin negatively. Theophan, his former mentor, had heard repeated reports of Rasputin attending baths with women and encouraging them not to confess the sin of adultery for reasons involving complicated religious interpretation but indicating nefarious motivations. Three times he chastised Rasputin privately, each time the wayward protege promised to change his ways until Theophan decided that he was an insincere deceiver and attempted to speak to the Tsar about the matter. He was only able to meet with Alexandra and Anna Virabova, who brusquely rebuffed any criticism of Rasputin and stopped any sanction in its tracks. Iliador, a charismatic preacher and monk and initially an associate and supporter of Rasputin, was initially spared exile to another part of the country by the ruling body of the Orthodox Church by Rasputin's intervention. Initially enthralled by the spirituality and clairvoyance of his benefactor, after spending a great deal of time traveling and interacting personally with Rasputin, he came to the loudly pronounced conclusion that the man was an egocentric manipulator and dangerously evil. From a political perspective, Rasputin had already attracted the attention of Piotr Stolypin, the prime minister and minister of the interior, and the most powerful bureaucrat in Russia. Stolypin was a strange mix of repressive authoritarian and progressive reformer who understood that Russian society, especially Russian rural agricultural society, needed serious restructuring and reform. Because of these views, he was disliked by many within the aristocracy, who believed him to be undermining their wealth and prestige, and was perceived as an enemy by political radicals who believed that if successful, he would only perpetuate the monarchy and an inequitable society. By 1911, Stolypin had survived numerous assassination attempts, including a bombing that killed 28 people and almost killed his daughter. As a result, Stolypin moved into the secure confines of the Winter Palace. Pragmatic and politically astute, after a single interview with Rasputin, Stolypin came to the conclusion that the man's influence over the ruling family was dangerous and should be eliminated. However, historical accounts indicate that he repeatedly brought up the matter with the Tsar, who typically responded by deflecting any confrontation. To his daughter, Stolypin said in the summer of 1911, Nothing can be done about it. Every time I had an opportunity to warn the Tsar, I did. And here is what he told me recently. I agree with you, Pyotr Arkadyevich, but better ten Rasputins than one of the Empress's hysterical fits. That's what the reason was. The Empress is ill, seriously ill. 
She believes that Rasputin is the only person in the whole world who can help the heir, and it is beyond human capacity to dissuade her. The Tsar is also said to have told Stolypin not to raise the matter again, as there was nothing he could do about it anyway. Such was the relationship between not only Alexandra and Rasputin, but also between Alexander and the Tsar, an autocrat so weak-willed he could not even rule within his own household. Pyotr Stolypin was finally assassinated on September 14, 1911, at the Kiev Opera House. Because of his enmity towards Rasputin, the royal family did not attend his funeral. Rasputin's relationship with the Tsar and his family had grown to the point where he routinely entered the Tsar's palaces and even the bedrooms of the Tsar's daughters during bedtime. Servants were appalled by his presence and conduct, and gossip about Rasputin began to sweep the aristocracy and members of the government. Rumors about sexual assault of the nannies who attended the family and even impropriety with the Tsar's own daughters were rife. Even when the governess of the Tsar's family complained directly to the Tsarina and Tsar of the impropriety of such a person lurking in the private quarters of the Grand Duchesses as they approach womanhood, the conversation merely served to alienate her from especially Alexandra. Inevitably, the Russian press got a hold of the Rasputin story and gave scandal even more momentum. An article in the Moscow Gazette, which labeled the holy man as an ambitious charlatan and unabashed lecher, made Rasputin a household word throughout the country. Other publications followed suit, the furor spreading to awareness within foreign embassies. The only effect was an inquiry from Nicholas to government officials as to the possibility of shutting down publications that printed such negativity. Not possible under Russia's newly liberalized society, editors were still contacted and discouraged from publishing items about Rasputin, and the uproar momentarily subsided, possibly because Rasputin abandoned the capital for much of 1910 and part of 1911. Still, he was no longer an obscure figure. For the rest of his life, he would be followed and watched by government agents looking for compromising information that could be used against him. In September of 1912, an incident occurred which was to cement the relationship between the Tsar and his family and Rasputin. The royal family left St. Petersburg for Spala, a hunting lodge in central Poland. Alexander was taking the eight-year-old Tsarevich on a carriage ride when he began to complain of pain. Alexander turned the carriage around, but it was too late, the bumpy ride injuring the boy and causing severe internal bleeding. Bedridden and in extreme pain, Alexei began to scream out in agony while his distraught parents could do nothing but pray and sympathize with him. While the public did not hear of the heir's hemophilia, all of Russia was plunged into agitation over Lexi's serious hemorrhaging, as it was described in updates that began to prepare the country for the news of the boy's death, so close to dying that he was administered the last rites. As a last-ditch attempt to save her son, Alexandra sent a telegram to Rasputin, who was spending the summer in Pokrovsko, away from the intrigue of St. Petersburg. She asked him to pray for Alexei. His response was swift and emphatic. He cabled back, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not be sad. The little boy will not die. Do not let the doctors torment him too much. In probably the strangest of all of the incidents associated with Rasputin, in a matter of hours after receiving the telegram, the condition of the Tsarevich began to improve. Whether this was coincidental luck, hypnotic trickery, or even some elusive mystical power has been debated historically for a century. 
The only certainty regarding the topic was that Alexandra truly believed that Rasputin, and only Rasputin, could keep her son alive. On top of the domestic health issues that plagued his family, Nicholas II also had to deal with foreign policy tensions in the Balkans that threatened to involve Russia in warfare. Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, and Montenegro began a war with the Ottoman Empire. And while Russia remained officially neutral, there was great public pressure for the country to join with its Christian and partially Slavic allies. Rasputin was vocally opposed to this or any Russian participation in warfare, and his views were quoted widely in the press. Whether or not it was truly the case, the perception was that Nicholas was influenced by Rasputin to remain officially neutral. This perception only undermined public approval of the royal family, negativity that would only be exacerbated by subsequent developments. By 1914, Rasputin was so notorious that he would be routinely condemned by parliamentarians in the Duma as a dangerous influence over the Tsar. On June 29, 1914, in Pokrovsko, Rasputin emerged from his house in order to hand a telegram to his postman. He was greeted by a mysterious female stranger, dressed in black with a white kerchief over her features, only her eyes visible. She silently bowed in front of him, and Rasputin paused to reach for his wallet, thinking that she was a beggar in search of money. The woman then produced a large dagger and rapidly stabbed Rasputin in the navel. He fled with the stranger, chasing him down the street, stopping only when Rasputin was able to knock her to the ground with a stick that was lying in the vicinity. Both he and his wife screamed for help, and a crowd quickly gathered, securing the attacker and taking her to jail. Rasputin was taken into his home, losing consciousness and initially thought near death. The assailant was a 30-year-old Siberian native named Hiona Guseva, who immediately confessed that she had stabbed Rasputin, who she characterized as a false prophet and a moral violator of chaste women. The strangest thing about her was a lack of a nose, a congenital defect that left her with an appearance that seemed totally appropriate for her bizarre behavior. At first it appeared that she would be successful, Rasputin's wounds requiring emergency surgery in unsterile conditions from a doctor who was rushed to the village from Tiumen. He was eventually placed on a riverboat and taken to the hospital in Tiumen where he eventually recovered. Nicholas ordered a complete investigation from the Minister of the Interior and demanded that Rasputin receive official protection. This was used as an excuse by police officials to monitor the religious figure's interactions on an even more invasive basis to determine where he was at all times and who he met with. Guseva, clearly insane, would be placed in an asylum and never prosecuted for the stabbing. A much graver crisis was engulfing Russia following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo. The heir to the Austrian throne was murdered by a Serbian nationalist, adding to the hostility in the Balkans and pitting Russia against its perpetual European rival Austria and Austria's allied Germany. Again, as the nation became engulfed in patriotic fervor and clamored for war, Rasputin publicly dissented and privately sent letters and cables to Nicholas, begging him in his archetypically fawning manner to avoid a bloody and disastrous conflict. One of these letters has actually survived and is in the archives of Yale University. Rasputin's pleas had no effect. By the end of August, Russia was engulfed in World War I, faced with defeating both Austria and Germany. Nicholas named Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolaevich, Rasputin's former patron, as commander-in-chief. 
this charismatic six foot six inch imposing figure now detested Rasputin, having heard the numerous tales of intrigue and debauchery that circulated among Russian aristocracy. Encouraged by Alexander to ask Grand Duke Nicholas if he could come to the front and bless the troops, Rasputin was told in response, Do come. I will hang you from the nearest lamppost, a comment which permanently earned the enmity of the Tsarina. With Tsar Nicholas also absent from the capital and at the front, Alexander began to rely on the input of Rasputin even more. Possibly as a result of his confidence in his standing with Nicholas and Alexandra, or possibly as a result of the evolution of the process of a descent into debauchery and alcoholism, an increase in the number of reports of drunkenness and sexual assignations were being officially compiled. In March of 1915, Rasputin allegedly became involved in an incident in a popular Moscow restaurant that scandalized the country. In an account that would be presented personally to the Tsar by Vladimir Zhunkovsky, the head of the Tsarist secret police, the Okhrana, Rasputin's evening at this restaurant known as the Yar would include uncontrolled drunkenness, lascivious groping of gypsy dancers, and finally public exposure of his genitalia. Nicholas asked Zhunkovsky to keep his dossier on the matter secret, but the government official made copies of the report and distributed them within influential circles of Russian society. While the veracity of the charges have been disputed, again the mere appearance of impropriety on the part of Rasputin was enough to galvanize anger and opposition to any association with the royal family. It did not help that Zhunkovsky was relieved of his post only two months after presenting this report. The perception that Rasputin could influence developments at the highest levels of government became widespread. Disastrous military results and skyrocketing prices brought popular hostility to anything believed to be remotely associated with Germany, including the Tsarina. Suspicions about Rasputin, especially because of his initial opposition to the war, led many to believe that he was a German spy or secret agent. The war continued disastrously for Russia. In less than a year, close to four million Russian soldiers would be killed, wounded, or captured. By August 1915, the Grand Duke Nicholas was demoted and replaced by Nicholas II himself. This meant that the Tsar would be permanently at headquarters at the front and would give Rasputin full access to Alexandra and the details of state. The demotion, as well as the shuffling of some of Nicholas's cabinet members, was seen negatively by the press and public, the perception that these changes were dictated by Rasputin. By now, the notorious holy man was known in even the most remote parts of Russia. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Grigory Rasputin. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith and The Rasputin File by Edvard Radzinski. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter, at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. 
a link is provided at the website.